Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20. Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember this Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no, you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, for your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself as we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Let's pray. Father God, Oh, how we love your law. It's our meditation all the day. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. We're gathered as a fellowship this morning to worship you. And we pray that you would give us hearts that desire to know your will. I pray that you would bind up your testimony within us and seal your law among us. We give thanks to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we started a kind of topical look at the law of God. And I attempted to make a, a, a case for the perpetual obligation to God's moral law. And then we ended with a brief look at some gospel, law gospel distinctions, specifically focusing on the moral law in hopes that we can better understand why God's law exists, why God gave us his law. Now, last week we talked about the threefold division of the law and the biblical and historical significance of understanding God's moral law in the categories of, or not his moral law, but understanding his law in the categories of moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws. And this week I want to shift our attention to more specifically looking at the use of the law. We, there'll be some overlap with last week, but I hope that we'll get uh, a little more specific 
and that that will be helpful for us. We started this morning in Exodus chapter 20, reading the Ten Commandments as God gave them on Mount Sinai, because I wanted to reiterate the uniqueness of the Ten Commandments, the uniqueness of the way in God in which God gave them. This is God's moral law, and there are other laws given throughout the Bible. Oftentimes they're referred to as positive laws, but it doesn't really matter what you call them as long as you can see that God's moral law is set apart from the other laws. And here in America, historically, maybe not in recent history, but historically, we've understood that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, were set apart. Oftentimes, historically, you would see them hanging in schoolhouses, courtrooms, legislatures, people's homes, you name it. The, the Ten Commandments were, uh, took a prominent place in our society. And that's because we understood that the Ten Commandments had a prominent role in our lives. So today I'd like to spend some time looking at the threefold use of God's moral law. Now some theologians throughout history have had more and some have had less distinctions within these categories as far as the use of the law. But the most popular by far has been the threefold use. And I think that it's the most succinct and helpful. So I'd like to, to use it in hopes to better understand God's moral law and how it can function in diverse ways. So as far as these three categories are, uh, go, they're broken up in, in this way. First is the pedagogical use. The second is the civil use. And the third is the normative, sometimes called didactic use. Now, we're going to use these three categories as kind of a roadmap as we walk through our, our uh, message this morning. In, in, in hopes that, as I talked about last week, that by illuminating God's, God, God's law, we might elevate his grace. Now, when we consider the moral law, um, we need to first understand its use in the, in the pedagogical sense. It's one of the most obvious and yet overlooked uh, uses of the law. Now, you might be like me and be able to piece it together by context, but not actually know what the word pedagogue means. Um, if we look it up in the dictionary, it literally translates to, to tutor or teacher. So the, the law as a tutor might be a more helpful category than the law as a pedagogue. But I, I do think there's something in the term pedagogue that's missing in the term uh, tutor. The, the idea of the law as a pedagogue can be seen in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. It says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. And there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that translation and other translations have, have used the, the term guardian instead of tutor because they're trying to convey this idea that it's a little bit bigger than just a tutor. The Greek word that they get guardian or tutor from is paidagogos, and it, it's where the word pedagogue comes from. So a paidagogos or a, a pedagogue was a servant of an upper-class family in both the Roman and Greek worlds. And its primary function was to supervise a boy through childhood. They would make sure he, he stays safe when he plays. They'd make sure he didn't miss school, that he finished all of his work. They would supervise and direct the conduct of a boy at all times until he reached manhood. So the idea of seeing the law as a tutor is helpful, but understanding it as a pedagogue, we see that the law, we see the law more clearly in how it's supposed to work in our lives. 
The law is used to, to drive or guide the unregenerate life to Christ in a way that a pedagogue would guide a boy into manhood. Now, John Calvin and uh, many of the Puritans frequently used the analogy of a mirror. They found that a helpful way of thinking about this idea. Calvin said that the law functions as a mirror in which we discover any stain upon our face. And I, I find this a helpful thought because like most people, I've experienced stepping in front of the mirror and seeing something that I wasn't expecting. So for, for many people, it's, you know, more gray hair than they remembered or maybe less hair than they remembered. Sometimes it's a few more wrinkles or a few extra pounds. Um, I, I, I might have the eating habits of a five-year-old, but I swear every time I eat like chocolate, no matter how well I rinse my mouth, I go to the mirror, I'll find something in my teeth. So the, the mirror helps to reflect the reality of what is there, even if we ourselves don't see it. Years ago, I had a, a friend's grandmother tell me that she still felt like she looked like she was 20 years old. And sometimes that she would look in the mirror and say, who is this old lady staring back at me? And that's the reality of our condition. We often think one way of our sin sinful estate, but the law acts as a mirror in which to reflect the reality so that we might ask ourselves, who is this that stands in front of the mirror? Paul affirms this idea in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if through the law comes a knowledge of sin, then we can say that if, a, if we were free to live devoid of the law, then we would have no mirror in which to properly see our sin. We have a natural inclination to think that we're going to step in front of the mirror and like what we see. We're going to pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. Instead of thinking, who is this? We might think to ourselves, I look pretty good. But Robert Bolton reminds us of what man will do without the law. He says, for want of light in God's law, they look upon their sins as we do upon the stars. See only the great ones, hear one and there one. But thanks be to God that, that the law acts as a pedagogue to direct us to the reality of who we are. Through the law, we are enabled not just to see the great ones, hear a sin, there a sin, but it enables us to see all of our sin. Ernest Keevan put it this way. He said, few men know what they do when they sin against God, that they need the bright glass of the law wherein we may see the evil of sin. The law was given to reveal transgressions as a reprover and corrector of sin, not only to discover sin, but to make it appear exceedingly sinful. Now, we need to be careful with this idea to not take it too far. The, the pedagogical use of the law is, is, is the law acting as a tutor to expose our sin, to show us our lowly and fallen estate. The, the law, like a mirror, can reflect the stains that are on our face, but a mirror has no ability to clean our face. And in the same way, the law has no ability to cleanse us from our sins. As I said before, the idea of a pedagogue and the pedagogical use of the law is seen in Galatians 3.24 when it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the law leads us to Christ. The law, the law does not justify. We're justified by faith in Christ. 
We see this explained even further in the next verse in Galatians, in Galatians 3.25. It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's a critical distinction. Augustine said, if the spirit of grace be absent, the law is present only to convict and slay us. The law guides us by showing the stain of sin. It's meant to lead us to Christ, the only means by which that stain can be cleansed. Ernie Reisinger said, the law tells us the right way to travel, though it, go, it gives no strength for the journey. So that's the, that's the first use of law, the, the law, the pedagogical use, the, the law acting as a tutor to guide us to Christ. And that functions primarily in the life of an unregenerate man. If you're without Christ, then the, then the law functions as a mirror to show your stains, that you might turn to Christ for salvation. Now the law is still of use to those who are Christians, who claim the name of Christ, and we'll address that in our discussion more on the normative use of the law. But in terms of our salvation, how we're justified before God, the law guides us to Christ, but in him we're fully justified. In the way that a pedagogue's job was to guide a boy into manhood, but once a boy was a man, there was no need for the pedagogue. In the same way, the law guides us to Christ, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. But what about those who refuse the admonition of the tutor? What if they look in a mirror and they don't heed the warnings reflecting back at them? And, and, and rather, they're content with what they see. Does the law have any bearing on someone like that? And the answer is, yes, it absolutely does. And that's to the second use of the law, the, the civil use of the law. Samuel Bolton said that, Blessed be God that there is fear upon the spirit of wicked men. Otherwise, we could not well live in the world. One man would be a devil to another. Every man would be a Cain to his brother, an Amon to his sister, an Absalom to his father, a Saul to himself, and a Judas to his master. For what one man does, all men would do, were it not for the restraint upon the spirits. The civil use of the law is that use of the law which does not convert souls, but restrains evil. Samuel Bolton used the term political use, but it's the same idea. It's the idea, it's the way in which the, the law is used to restrain evil in ordinary men. To best understand the civil use of the law, we need to go back to one facet of the law which we talked about last week, and that's the, the natural law. The fact that God's moral law is written on our hearts. We, we see it in Romans 2.15, speaking of Gentiles. Or you could really say he's speaking to those, Paul's speaking to those whom the law was never actually given. And he says that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. And through Genesis and Exodus, prior to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, we see men acting in unrighteous ways and see them punished for their transgressions. Paul reminds us where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the standard of these unrighteous men was God's law and God had written his law upon their heart in such a way that they were at fault for their transgression. In much the same way, all men have a natural understanding of God's law. And because of that, God's law can be used to restrain the evil of men. Even those men who aren't acquainted with the Ten Commandments. We see examples 
of this throughout the Bible, God restraining the evil of pagan men. I think of the story of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. If you remember the story, it takes place shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible tells us that Abraham was sojourning with his wife Sarah in the land of Gerar, and the man, and the man Abimelech was the king of Gerar. Abraham tells the king that Sarah is actually his sister, so that Abimelech takes Sarah to be his own wife. And starting in chapter 20, verse 3, it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand, I have done this. So Abimelech had a sense of integrity in his heart and a recognition of good and evil. So much so that he could appeal to God and say, I am blameless. This integrity, this sense of right and wrong, the law written, shows that the law was written on Abimelech's heart. Now there's no indication that this law drove him to repentance. There's no recognition of his sinful estate and turning in faith. Rather, the law is used for this pagan king to restrain him from evil and to give him a sense of justice. And we see the law functioning this way in our everyday relationships that we have. Unbelievers are not continually doing evil all the time. There's a sense of order in our society and a desire for justice, even if it's a perverted justice. Many of us can think of examples of godless people that are kind and do the right thing. When preparing for this, I kept thinking of a, a friend of mine from years ago. He, he was and probably still is an incredibly giving and kind person, though he rejected God completely. And I remember him telling me this, this story. He's a plumber, and he was working in a multiple-story commercial building. And he was in the plenum space, a space above the bottom floor ceiling, but below the floor of the second floor. And below him was a beauty salon with women getting their hair done. And there was a problem in the uh, toilet drainage pipe. And so he had to repair it. And as he cracked it open, it started to leak. And this drainage water was leaking and his bucket was too far away to grab. And so he kind of flung himself underneath this toilet drainage water and allowed his clothes to suck up all the, all the toilet water. And his goal was to make sure no water, none of this uh, waste water got on the women below who were doing their hair. And <laughs> this is a godless man. And yet sometimes godless men make decisions that are very good. And this guy would rather plunge himself underneath this wastewater than allow it to drip on a complete stranger. Now, it might be a silly example, but I think it illustrates the point. God's law works to restrain evil so that the only reason society is not in utter chaos all of the time and that is because God has put a sense of fear in them that they must obey his law. God's law in this civil sense is restraining the inclinations of fallen hearts and unregenerate people. 
We see Paul talking about this idea. If we go back to Romans chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Matthew Henry said of this verse, they had that which directed them to do by the light of nature, to what to do by the light of nature, by the force and tendency of their natural notions and dictates, they apprehended a clear and vast difference between good and evil. They did by nature the things contained in the law. They had a sense of justice and equity, honor and purity, love and charity. The light of nature taught obedience to parents, pity to the miserable, conservation of public peace and order, forbade murder, stealing, lying, and perjury. Thus, they were a law unto themselves. Now, we do have to be careful here to not prescribe moral fidelity to those who keep the law by means of the civil use. This morning, Scott talked about God's goodness and what goodness really meant. And people who are restrained by the civil use of the law are not doing morally good things. The law is indeed written on their hearts, but their obedience to it is out of compulsion and fear. Their law keeping is not in any way moral. Ernest Keevan again said that the distinction that is sometimes made between what is morally good and what is theologically good cannot be substantiated. For moral good ought to be theological. That is to say, it must be good not only in what is done, but in why it is done. Not only in the matter, but in the motive. Because the unregenerate man fails in this qualifying motive, he must said to be, be unable to do any work that is morally good. The point here is that the civil use of the law works to restrain evil, but it doesn't make the work of restraint morally good. This is obedience to the law outside of the work of faith. As Hebrews eleven six reminds us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the civil use of the law is not driven by faith, but by compulsion and fear. In fact, John Calvin said, the feeling of all who are not yet regenerate, though in some more and others less lively is, that in regard to the observance of the law, they are not led by voluntary submission, but are dragged by the force of fear. The civil use of the law drags the heart of, unregenerate, of unregenerates to submission through force of fear. I think that if we're to look at those first two uses of the law, the uh, pedagogical use and the civil use, that there would be wide agreement throughout the evangelical world. In some ways, the pedagogical use and the civil use are the most obvious uses of the law. And when we get into the, the normative, or like I said, sometimes it's called didactive use, it's not so widely accepted. With the rise of new covenant theology and dispensational thought throughout evangelical churches, there's a reluctance to ascribe any power to the law in the life of a believer. However, John Calvin said of the third use of the law that it was the principal use. And I believe that a failure to see the law, the, the law working in the life of a believer is a failure to see the full measure of grace in the life of a believer. And that's what the normative use is all about. The third use of the law is the law acting as a teacher to guide Christians to love God and to love their neighbor. It shows us how to be sanctified. 
This is different than the law as a pedagogue that we talked about earlier. That context was for the unregenerate man. The law there was used to eliminate the, to illuminate the reality of our sins in order to drive us to Christ for salvation. The third use of the law is for Christians. Not that we may gain or lose salvation because our salvation is secure in Christ. This is the law teaching us how to live in a life that is pleasing to God. And we intrinsically understand that the gospel does not prescribe licentiousness in the life of a believer. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the life of a believer must be chastened in such a way that we're equipped for every good, good work. And the law assists in, the, in this. The law does this for a life of a believer. It reproves and it corrects. It shows us the way that we must go to be equipped for every good work. And the primary good work that we're equipped to do by the law is the will of God. Doing the will of God is the essence of, of good work. And God's law is the very transcript of his will. 1 John 2, 16 through 17 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So as Christians, we're called to obedience to the law and that's God's will for us that we might be sanctified for we were reminded by the Apostle Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that the ultimate will of God is our sanctification. And there is no way to be sanctified apart from the law. In fact, we're told in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So for believers, the law teaches us the will of God that we may be driven to sanctification. This call uh, to obedience in the life of a believer is, is an ongoing theme throughout all of Scripture. You can hardly read the Psalms without being encouraged by the psalmist over and over again to delight in the law. Psalm 1 says that our delight should be in the law of God. Psalm 112 says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119, the the entire theme is to delight in the law of God. And it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament has this theme of obedience. Titus 3.8 says this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. John 14.23, Jesus answered them, and said, or Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In Romans 7.22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But what I'd like to draw our attention to briefly is Romans 8.3-4. The two verses nicely summarize both the law's inability to bring about salvation while still maintaining our duty to keep the righteous requirements of the law. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But the first thing that we learn in this uh, scripture here is that the, the law has no ability to save. This is what is meant when he says that what the law could not do, God did. We talked about this earlier when speaking about the, the law as a mirror. The law points us to the reality of our sin, but has no ability to save us from it. But God can and did save us from that sin by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering for us. But the, the thing I wanted to look at specifically here are two things. The first being in line with the normative use of the law. That Paul is arguing that through sacrificial work of Christ, our sinful, free, our sinful flesh was set free from the bondage of sin. In order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So we're freed from the law. It has no power to condemn us. But the apostle here still tells us that the law will be fulfilled in us. This is not a call to works righteousness. We're saved by grace alone, apart from works of the law. But part of the wonder of Christ is that he enables us to fulfill the law. And then the question is, how does he enable us? How, does, how can we keep the law? And, and that's the second part that Paul is talking about here. The second thing I wanted to look at, it's, it's critical as Christians that we understand how we keep the law. Paul says that the, the requirements of the law, the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the reality, the reality is that law, the law drives us to Christ and Christ alone can cleanse us from our sins. But it, it doesn't end there. We're so helpless that even with this new birth in Christ, we still lack the ability to obey the law. And so we're imputed with the Holy Spirit who enables us to keep the law. So the requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. As Galatians 6.16 6, says, But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Ralph Erskine has a, has a rather famous sonnet that sums up the law quite nicely. It's pretty long, but the sonnet ends with these words. You've probably heard them before. He said, A rigid master was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. I love this thought that, that the, the law sings out through the tongue of the gospel. There's still a, a demand. The law bids us to fly, but it's the gospel that enables us to obey. It bids us fly, but the gospel gives you wings. So the Spirit enables us as a believer to follow God's law. And I want this to be an encouragement, not a discouragement to us. I'm not saying that as believers, the Spirit enables us to obey the law flawlessly. So that if you're a follower in Christ, you should be perfectly holy. That would be the burden of the law condemning us. That's the civil use of the law. That's how the law functions for unbelievers. It drives them through fear. But in Christ, there is no fear. The law cannot condemn those who are in Christ. This might be a bad example, but I find it helpful. 
I kind of likened it to playing a game of uh, pickup basketball. And you get, you get picked by, uh, by a team and you tell the guy that picked you, I'm pretty terrible at basketball. I doubt I can even make a shot. And he says, you know, don't worry about it. We know how good you are. And you, so you go out and you start playing and you, you miss the very first shot. And he, he just bites your head off and says, get out of here. We demand perfection around here. That's, that's not how the law functions in the life of a believer. That's not the life of a Christian. It's true that God demands perfect obedience, but Christ has accomplished that on your behalf. So there is no expectation to perform. When I'm talking about the Spirit enabling us to obey God's law, I'm talking about the desire that is in our hearts. This is alluded to in Romans 7, verses 23 through 25, when Paul says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. The the, the desire of a believer's heart is towards obedience to God's law. It takes delight in the law because the law is the transcript of God's will and it is our delight to do God's will. And as Christians, this is the call of our heart, a delight in God's will. For his law is written in our hearts, Psalm 40, verse 8. This is the the normative use of the law. The expectation is not that you will step up and drain every free throw that you take, but rather that the Holy Spirit guides your heart in such a way that you desire to step up and shoot. So the pedagogical use of the law is where God exposes our sin, that we may turn to Christ. The civil use drives the unrepentant heart to obedience through fear. And the normative use of the law shows us God's will that we may delight to obey. So that leaves us with one final question. Have you examined yourself? What role does, the God, does God's law play in your life? Do you delight in the law because of your love for Christ and your desire to do his will? Or is your obedience a product of fear and compulsion? If so, I would encourage you to let the law act as a mirror that you may see your sin-corrupted heart in light of the perfection of God. Let it drive you to the cross of Christ that you may take refuge in him. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your wondrous love. We give you thanks for your law. And we ask that you would enable us through the work of your Holy Spirit to delight in your law. And if there is anyone here, God, who is not in Christ, we ask that your law would be a mirror in their life, that they might see the reality of their sinful estate and turn to Christ, that they may be washed clean. God, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We praise your holy name, and in all things we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.